hello. Welcome to Sustainable 202. Welcome yourself, all to Sustainable 202, my ridiculously attired chum. What the hell do you look like? Well, you know, we're a year into lockdowns and I've I've lost what little little respect I have for my own appearance. But crucially, uh, baby old number two ripped my glasses apart. And the only way I can keep them on my face is by pinning them to my face with a buff, which I use as a bandana. And with a what? What's a fine. buff? A buff. Buff is a very snug, cosy thing that you can put around your neck or like over your Smooth. head underneath. You yeah, like snood. a snood, but kind of thin, yeah. very thin. People use it on mountains Well, and stuff. I, I would ask the listeners to imagine what you look like, but you don't need to because I've just taken a screen grab, so I'll post it to social media and you can make your own mind up. That's super news. Yes, welcome to your friendly little weekly environment podcast, all about people and the planet and why, despite everything being a little bit scary, we can have a little chuckle about it every now and then, yes? Yes. And what are we going to be having a chuckle about and looking into the scariness of this week, Oh. Well, we're going to be looking into the scariness of activism, of doing mm. something about this terrible planetary strife in which we find ourselves. Activism, I suppose, you know, it's a thing we've talked about a bit and skirted around. We certainly talked to activists before, particularly that Danny Paffard off of Heathrow 13. Go back and listen to episode uh, 45. <sighs> Is you, I feel like you're back on track with this now. There was a period where the kind of Rain Man effect was wearing off, but you're back on track. Yeah, go back and let, listen to that episode to hear um, from an activist. But we're talking about activism in the broadest sense, and specifically activism that can feel a bit scary, or, or scary for, for those of us who don't really consider ourselves the big, brave, extrovert activist that sometimes is what is depicted um, as an activist being. That wasn't a sentence, but you know Super. what I mean. You know, you've been you've been staying up late again, huh? Oh, oh, just I'm doing I'm doing fine. Everything's fine. <laughs> Everything's fine. You carry <laughs> yes, on. Yes, I'll take over. We had a chat with a wonderful person called Jill Coombs. Jill has written a book called The Trembling Warrior, amongst other books. And the book is signalled as a guide for reluctant activists. It looks at why activism is scary and why there are all sorts of different types of activism and how you should understand what scares you and what doesn't, when it's all right to be scared, when it isn't, and how you can avoid and cope with burnout and Jill is fab we had such a lovely chat and it's a bit more of a kind of um I hesitate to say the word therapy for oral session but I'll, I'll say therapy for oral session <laughs> there was certainly than you period, might normally expect <laughs> there was certainly a period where I was like I wonder if Jill feels like one of her professional coaching sessions for which she usually charges a fee is being kind of extracted from her under false pretenses by these podcasters but she was very gracious and charitable and didn't seem to complain indeed no um so enjoy the chat with jill we did we learned a lot it's great put a cup of tea on and shut up and listen just before any of that two things first the usual disclaimer we do work for environmental charities don't we all correct Still managing that, are you? Yep. Yep. Good, good. Uh, but these are very much our own views. So if anything that we say or Jill says rubs you up the wrong way, take it up with us, but not for the people that employ us. Yes? Correct. Other thing to say is we depend very much upon your financial support to keep this thing going. We are very grateful to people who chuck into our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash sustainababble. 
but we could always do with more to keep this show on the road so please if you like this podcast chuck in the price of a pint you can get it for free if not but every little helps oh and the other thing stick around for after the chat with jill when you're going to hear me making a groveling apology about why the fact last week's episode has had to be edited a bit oh so good Mm. so good i'm very sorry Yes. Now, moving on from Dave's apologies and back to Jill, we began chatting to Jill by asking her all about something, well, quite scary, going and getting nicked in the name of saving the planet. You did a thing that I would find absolutely terrifying, which is you were part of the thousands of people that deliberately got themselves nicked as part of Extinction Rebellion, which, you know, firstly, thank you for doing that and kudos and everything. But did it scare you? Was it a scary thing to deliberately be putting yourself in trouble? And if so, why did you do it? Yeah, actually, no, it wasn't scary. Uh, I wasn't scared at all by being nicked. Um, and that's I feel quite privileged in being able to say that because I, there's nothing in my personal history or in my cultural background which gives me a reason to be scared of being nicked. So being picked up and carted away, well, that was uh, it was undignified, but it wasn't scary. Um, queuing out. And you were literally pick, picked up literally, and carted away. Literally, yeah. Really. Um, yeah. Uh, copper on each leg and two at the back end as well, I think, and just sort of carted oh. away in some very un- undignified, because the, um, two, the two policemen at the front holding the feet kind of were standing a bit too far, walking a bit too far apart for my liking. Um, so that wasn't, wasn't oh. particularly oh. dignified. Yeah. And oh. then um, when we got to the police station, there was a queue. We were like, as you say, there were thousands of us arrested. And this is like the first time because I've done this twice. So this was back in April. 2019 and there was a, a queue of us waiting to get into the police station and uh, it was very uncomfortable because we had lots of us for time for a pee that was uncomfortable but it wasn't scary and uh, being in the cell well that wasn't scary either I mean it was tedious and I can imagine there would be a lot of people who would be terrified by the idea of being on their own and without their devices for 24 hours but um, for me I guess I saw it as an opportunity to uh, meditate did some yoga uh, I drew the toilet. I had pencil and paper and I drew the toilet, um, which is not something you, I ever thought what, I'd say. You drew the toilet? You literally just sketched the toilet? I sketched the toilet, yeah. It was like not much else to do. But I can assure you, sir, an elephant could safely use that toilet. Not without a much bigger bowl. <laughs> so that in itself wasn't at all a scary event for me. Uh, I think some people are also scared of, you know, when they're arrested, and rightly so, they're scared of the implications of being arrested. You know, if they're mm. found guilty of a, of something, then there's the problem with uh, getting insurance. Uh, people don't always realise that. It can be harder to get insurance. It's harder to get things, you know, maybe get a job. Um, and, you know, some people go to prison. You know, that's just true. You know, people don't always expect uh, to be found guilty or to go to prison. But, you know, it does happen. So there are, you know, justifiable fears about being arrested and that would be something different, I guess, for everybody. Uh, But for me, yeah, it wasn't the scariest thing I've done by quite a long way. So are you then fearless? Are you a fearless person who is scared of nothing? Because that seems to me to be one of those. You're not scared of that. Must be fine, right? Uh, no, no, we're no. That's not true at all. Actually, I'm scared of different things. Um, I'm scared of worms. Does that count? I suppose it's not really activism, is it? But not yet. But the worms need heroes too, don't they? <laughs> they do. Yeah. I'm fond of 
I'm scared. I'm scared of the worms that um, that I've heard friends of mine having to pull worms out of their children's bottoms. They're, those <laughs> those worms scare me. And I'm okay if I know I'm going to come across one in the ground when I'm weeding or something. That's all right. But if one pops up unexpectedly, I still have this kind of <gasps> kind of horror response. So, <laughs> but no. To, in terms of activism, well, okay. What really scares me is this. So, discovering that I've f***ed up really badly. That's what scares me. Doing something that impacts seriously on somebody else or makes me look like a real idiot <laughs> or has hurt somebody or offends somebody or, yeah, drops everybody in it, you know, through some uh, maybe stupid decision or through being naive or something. That's the kind of thing that scares me much more than being picked up by four policemen and carried away. Uh, I, I can definitely relate to that. I mean, I, I, I haven't done that sort of activism I haven't got myself arrested and I'm sort of asking myself why quite a lot as well but um but I I'm not that scared by the prospect of that sort of confrontation but I definitely am scared I'm really scared of being wrong which which I think is uh-huh. I, I think it like really knackers my kind of ability to be good at stuff or to like be useful more to the point to, to have impact I think they're yeah, it's why 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 are we scared of being wrong, especially in the kind of in the in the realms of activism? You know, when we're trying by by default, we're trying to change things. We're trying to change the status quo. Why are we so scared of getting things wrong? Why am yeah, I scared? Yeah. <laughs> well, a lot of people, because um, you probably know that I also work as a coach and a counsellor alongside my activism. So I meet and I encounter a lot of people. I met one today who was talking about being. You know, why is it that I'm scared of? upsetting people or offending people and uh, a lot of this stuff gets laid down in our childhood you know just as some of the messages we take in about you know this if if you upset or uh, offend or get it wrong you know whatever the stories are about that then you know it's when you're a small human being you know the world might come to an end Um, and that's what you know if, if your parents uh, are going to be that displeased with you. That's uh, when you're a very small child, that's an existential thing to have happen. So um, um, everybody's different in this. We've all grown up, obviously, with different families and different stories, but we do take in this stuff and it gets laid down quite young. You know, the things that we irrationally fear, uh, probably including mm. words. I would say, I mean, it's quite early in the podcast for you to do, for you to completely write yourself off, Ol, but um, <laughs> I was just, just going to say you're, you're sometimes right. <laughs> there's also there's a this notion of being wrong as well it's an interesting one because you know what do we call actually being wrong or being right it's a very subjective thing mm. so normally what we're fearing isn't so much being wrong is that somebody else's opinion about us being wrong and once we you know something about being able to disentangle that and to recognize what our own kind of right and true is and for me you know that's a lot more important um this is something I've kind of had to work with for myself over the years, but being able to to recognise that I'm never going to get things right for everyone. You know, I'm always mm. going to piss somebody off, uh, if, especially if I do something like standing for Parliament or getting arrested or whatever. There are going to be people who are pissed off, and that has to be okay. Um, I'd rather be 
considered wrong for doing something that I utterly believe in and that's utterly congruent with my values and what I want to see happen in the world than considered wrong for something that I genuinely feel that I have fucked up on and, you know, let someone down or hurt someone unnecessarily or whatever. So I guess it's a question is, it's like, what's our right, you know, personally? Talk to us a bit more. So your book is called The Trembling Warrior. Yeah. I... Your most recent book, of course, you've written other ones, but the most recent one, what I have just read, is called The Trembling Warrior. And I love yeah. this idea of fighting against something but being a little bit scared by it. Yeah, so I guess it's that twin thing. Um, for me personally, I think for lots of other people I've met, it's a twin thing of being, I hope, fairly kind, uh, usually fairly gentle, probably fairly sensitive on the scale of things, um, and in an ideal life, I'd, I don't know, I'd be writing poetry and singing songs in a lovely garden or something. But, you know, it's like, but also there is corruption and suffering going on in the world. And there are things which are time critical. And there's a part of me that is doesn't just feel urgent around that. It feels bloody furious, you know, with the, the systems and the institutions that are driving and perpetuating all of this. So it's like an inattention for me. So there's the part, you know, the, the gentle, kind, sensitive part that just wants a quiet life, really. And the other part that is furious and is absolutely not prepared to just, you know, sit back and let all this stuff happen, um, really wants to contribute something to addressing it and doing something about it. So yeah, that's the trembling warrior. And right in the book was I guess partly me, you know, as it is with anybody, I think, when they write a book, it's partly exploring our own story around that. But it's also uh, designed to give people a toolkit for being their own trembling warrior. Uh, and and there's something about affirming and encouraging people who are coming from that place as well, who don't consider themselves, you know, feisty activists, but nevertheless, they want to be doing something. So to resource and affirm those people. Yeah. Do you think there's a almost an image problem for sort of activism in the, in the traditional sense, or activism as mm. as I guess a lot of people might understand it, that it it presents kind of the opposite. It presents scary this world of extroverts and people who are supremely confident in what they believe and what they're doing, apparently a fearless in the face of you know state oppression or extraordinary personal risks or police brutality mm. or anything. Um, mm. Uh, and it's like, wow, you know, these people are, are truly sort of heroic and I'm glad they're doing it, but there's no way I can do it. Do you think do you think that is a problem or or is it just part of the activist kind of world and, and you know, there's plenty of space for other things and get on with it? There is. I suppose it's a, a problem of marketing as much as anything else, isn't it? That tends to be how activism is portrayed and sold. That's a message about activism. Um and I think a lot of people can be put off because of that. But sometimes it's just something simple like changing the language. So you don't have to be an activist, but can you contribute something? Uh, yeah, mm. absolutely. Um, and yeah, all uh, kudos to the feisty ones, the ones who glue themselves onto banks and dangle from cranes and whiz about in front of whaling boats and things like, great. You know, it's like we don't all have to do that. There are people who are on it. There are people who love the adrenaline rush of doing it and uh, and are very up for it. And, and there is loads and loads of other stuff to do as well. I think Roger Hallam um, 
from exile like famously says for every one person that's arrested uh there are 99 people doing other stuff whether it's making food or sitting on a bridge or doing the creative piece or filmmaking you know there's it's endless really so um the people getting arrested tend to be the high profile ones because it's good you know like media fodder if you like but everybody has something to bring and not just to extinction rebellion but to whatever it is in the world that people care about enough to be angry and want to do something about you know the the thing is to find for each person to find what they are best at what's most naturally suited to their temperament and their skills and and that tends to be what they enjoy most as well so it doesn't have to be you know we don't have to take ourselves right out of our comfort zone into our panic zone you know it's good to go into a stretch zone sometimes because that's where you grow right and that's where you uh expand your capacity and resilience uh but there's no point in people taking themselves right out of their comfort zone into a panic zone and um scaring themselves silly or getting burnout or whatever you know there was somebody on the bridge with me who she was claustrophobic but she felt that she should be arrested because that's what everyone else was doing it became a bit of a thing that you know she was experiencing that peer pressure um and then some of the others around her just kind of almost like talked her down and said she's not got to do it you know there's plenty of other things you can be doing are you looking forward to the big push no sir i'm absolutely terrified do you think it is important to be a bit scared so you're talking about being in your stress zone or being in your comfort mm. zone do you mm. think it, it uh, why does it why should something be a bit scary why should we be trembling why not just stay in our comfort zone the whole time i think if all of us stayed in our comfort zone all of the time um the rape and pillage of the uh, world and human beings and other species would just continue uh i think the level of courage that we have on the it's almost like i'm pitching it as a kind of good versus evil battle but on our side if you like in the people who are kind of fighting injustice um at the moment you know the world situation uh that almost like feels like a tipping point that we're at at the moment it feels like it requires everybody just to step out of their comfort zone at least a little bit some people are doing awesome hero stuff um mm. uh and other people are kind of just taking themselves that little bit further and for some people it will just be something like having an uncomfortable conversation you know where you do risk losing your friends or yeah. um trying to shift something in your workplace you know having a conversation which tries to change how things happen so you know everybody's choosing their own degree of edginess really and it's important isn't it because i think it's easy for any individual the things that they take for granted that they can do it's kind mm. of easy for us to go oh that's easy well obviously you know you can you can give a talk to a room full of people of course you can but actually mm. for some people public speaking for example is a oh, monumentally yeah. terrifying thing to do oh, yeah. um and i've always found that quite easy for example so i suppose it's quite like important for you to recognize what you're good at mm. um and to think about how you can apply that mm. in any given situation right Exactly that. Yeah, exactly that. So whatever our, you know, it doesn't take too much investigation uh to discover what our general kind of skills and qualities are in the world, you know, what do people naturally kind of turn to us for, what do we naturally find ourselves drawn to doing. Uh and those are the things where it makes, you know, it kind of really makes sense and I believe almost like an organic level in an ecosystem you've got every um species doing its own thing, everything contributes something to the piece and they're all necessary. Uh 
same with human beings, I think, on any kind of endeavour, everybody's bringing something and it makes a lot more sense to have, um, you know, a deer doing what a deer does and a wolf doing what a wolf does instead of them trying to do each other's jobs. I find myself um, desperately kind of trying to be uh, better at other things the whole time, and I want, and and I sort of I feel like an you know an obligation, certainly in a work context or in a kind of activism context, an obligation to like be good at the things I'm not good at, or at least to Turn try. Up on time. Yeah, you know, like <laughs> punctuality. Um, you know, presentation, doing, doing the things I say I'm going to do, yeah. all those sorts of things. Um, <laughs> But it's, I don't know, there must be a huge amount of kind of emotional energy expended in like trying to be something that you're just not very good at being. It's exhausting, right? (laughs) Yeah, right. It is exhausting. It's um, psychologist Carl Jung, who uh, you may well have come across, he talked about putting on a mask, you know, a persona. Um, When we're going into places that aren't our natural operating style, we're putting on a mask. And that does take a lot of energy, you know, to kind of draw out a persona that isn't really yours. Having said that, I think it, you're right. And do kind of stretching yourself, so it kind of rounds you out a little bit. So if you can get just like a bit better at punctuality, even if it won't ever be your strongest suit, or if you can get a bit better, you know, any of the things that, you know, if you can kind of grow a little bit and stretch a little bit into those areas. Just just for God's sake, Cole, just, just a bit better would do well. Really. Just, a, just a bit better. You know, it's a, like, minute, a minute or so here or there. <laughs> and for, so for me, what would it be? What am I not good at? Discipline and doing the same things every day. That would be a huge stretch for me and is a huge stretch for me but when I do that I kind of it's never going to be my strongest thing being disciplined to kind of keep to the same routine but now and again it really serves me um and Mm. so having the capacity to be able to step into that when I need to and then step back out of it at the end of a I don't know a project or something and think oh thank god I can just you know be spontaneous for uh, a few weeks now and uh, relax back into that it's and it's funny because you know these these things don't always feel like they're serving you but they're but they're often very sort of ingrained cultural things aren't they so like there was an article in in the paper the other day about the sort of tyranny of early starters and if you're you know if if you're if you're somebody who just doesn't really work very well in the morning but sort of gradually cranks into gear during the course of the day Mm. and then really comes to life late at night and enjoys staying up late yeah you sort of you're not really valued in the same way because it's the early it's the early birds who are, who are well, <laughs> loads the worms, of, there's loads of stuff about that isn't it like sending teenagers to school at half eight in the morning is a barbaric thing to do because yeah. a teenager's body clock is two hours later than adults every fiber in their being is saying yeah. i need to be asleep and you know growing at sort of three centimeters a day or whatever they're doing Ten. i beg your pardon ten pounds don't be silly, Kevin. Five pounds you agreed and five pounds it is. Oh, oh, that is so unfair! <laughs> exactly that. And it's, it's crazy when you think about it. Um, the workplace is set up to, you know, and a real one-size-fits-all, you know, it's like, and it's changing. I think over the last year it's changed radically, but uh, up mm. until fairly recently, this expectation that everybody will work to the same rhythms and work the same time, it's a very kind of Cartesian. It's very kind of... Um, 
disconnected and rational and uh, measured out and has absolutely no relation to individual, very real, um, as you say, you know, personal kind of rhythms and, you know, daily or monthly or annual rhythms even. It just makes so much more sense, doesn't it, for people to be able to work to their own rhythms and to appreciate each other's rhythms and find some way of making that work for everyone. You have written really powerfully and talked really powerfully about burnout before. So I wondered if you, which is a thing that um, back in episode 169, I think I banged on a bit like some sort of self-indulgent wonk before oh, the entire... No, before, not, no well, come on. No, because, uh, you know, I it does look as though I am to stick up for you. As you know, I will take any opportunity to stick the boot in. But no, you yes. weren't self-indulgent. I thought it, were, it was... It's just that it did feel self-indulgent given that the world then collapsed into pandemic mayhem about two weeks later and well, we yeah, got an insight into what a real problem was. <laughs> you weren't to know that, though, were you? <laughs> no, that's true. But, um, and, you know, Ol has, you've, you've talked before about some of your experiences like that. So burnout mm. is such a common thing in activism, mm. isn't it? Mm. It's so common. And I wondered if you could tell us a bit about your experiences with it and having come out of it the other side, how you got out of it, and what you do now to make sure that doesn't happen to you again. Yeah. What even is burnout? Maybe we start there. I don't know. Yeah. And I, well, I think burnout is um, different things for different people. So for some people, it shows up as it did with me. I can happily talk more to this is uh, a period of depression. Uh, for other people, I think it's uh, almost like a numbing out so that you almost find yourself not caring anymore and then giving yourself a hard time for that, you know, just kind of scrolling through mm. all the images of suffering or whatever. I oh, just can't be doing with it, can't be doing with it. And it's a really wise part of our psyche or soul or psychology, call it what you like, but it's a really wise part of us that knows we've had enough, uh, that knows we can't take anymore. And so it just shuts something down and says, right, okay, we're out of here. Um, we need to just stop doing stuff for a while. And I think in activism, because there's, particularly with climate change, but with all things really where we're seeing stuff that's like, no, no more of this. We feel the urgency. And I've seen so many activists and you will have to keep pushing. And Well, and you've kind of done this, yeah. I know, you know, kind of keep pushing ourselves and keep pushing ourselves when actually there's a part of us just screaming out, no, stop, stop. So, being able to listen to that voice and to actually stop, I think, is is crucial and catching that as early as you can. Um, so I'm reminded of, for example, with climate change, uh, one of the presidents, I don't remember who, said, I'll start acting on climate change when there's signs of it. Uh, by which time, of course... Not Trump. Not tr Definitely not Trump. Um, it wasn't Obama even. Because he, he wouldn't even have said that, would he? Wouldn't, he no, no, definitely not. Because um, no, no, it wasn't was even a thing, was it? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> nothing wrong. I did nothing wrong. I've done things wrong in my life, I will admit. Not purposely, but I've done things wrong. <laughs> um, yeah, it was, I don't know who it was, but uh, so he said that, and like clearly that's not a good plan because once there are signs of it, it's already well in train and having a destructive impact. Exactly the same thing is true, of course, with burnout. You know, so there's something about being able to come upstream and to see the signs already that things are starting to uh, overwhelm you. 
or that you're starting to feel stressed or starting to numb out. You know, it's kind of knowing your own process, really. And like you were saying earlier, all about getting to know yourself. You know, the more we know ourselves and are familiar with our own uh, process and patterns, the more we can go, oh, actually, I recognise that. And so uh, it's probably time, even though rationally I have a hard job convincing myself and telling myself this, it probably is time that I just take myself out of the picture for a while, which is exactly what I did. What did you and what did you do? Did you uh, sit in your garden and sing Kumbaya, or stay in bed for a fortnight, or what? Yeah, both of those. I'm not both. sure if it was actually Kumbaya, but it could well have been. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there definitely would have been singing and sitting in the garden involved. So this was um, particularly. I mean, I've kind of gone in and out of this. I think we all do just have days where we think, ah, oh, enough. Um, but like major burnout came after I stood for Parliament in 2015. And I've been doing a parliamentary campaign for about six months. And um, pretty much because the Green Party, who I stood for, it wasn't Tories. Um, a, a stretched... I, was say, I was assuming UKIP, <laughs> but um, you know, I don't think I got that wrong. Uh, <laughs> um, so these memories are coming flashing back at the UKIP candidate now. Um, but anyway, oh, so I did on, this. Go on, tell us about Tell us about the UKIP candidate. Okay, so just, okay, I've just dropped one little bit in that the main, the main cause by quite a long way of the death of songbirds is um, being killed by solar panels. Um, yeah. Okay. So that's the well, one is that, that is that because the UKIP me. candidate was walking around the lanes with a solar panel, smacking songburns in the face? <laughs> well, I kind of got the impression that he was going around with a broom or something and had to sweep up all these corpses anywhere near where there was uh, a solar panel because all these birds have been flying over them and just dropping out of the br- sky or 20. something. <laughs> Hang on a minute. I I'm sorry. This isn't what we wanted. What did he think? Did he think that like the death rays were reflecting off the solar panel? Because we did an episode about this a long time ago about like solar panel getting so so hot in principle that it can fry birds but i don't think that happens in the fields of totness right? i don't think it i don't think it happens like to thousands of birds every day i mean it may have happened to no. one bird once possibly even two i don't know but you know he was sweeping up the piles of corpses you know it's like the major killer so anyway him but um so yeah i did this uh six month campaign and the green party's pretty stretched you know in terms of finances and resources so I was pretty much kind of running and doing the campaign uh, on my own. And that's uh, with with a bit of help. But um, Green Party that I belong to was sort of straddled four constituencies. So, you know, there wasn't a lot of resource to go around. Um, And it was okay. I I did. I like you, Dave. I enjoyed public speaking. And so that's kind of what I centred the campaign around, you know, going to pubs and clubs and things and giving a bit of a talk and taking some questions. And I quite enjoyed that. Um, And doing a bit of a kind of email sort of, you know, anyway, that that whole piece. But it did involve, I had to do hustings as well, which were quite scary. Um, uh actually uh they were is when that's when members of the public just come and ask you questions randomly well yeah or, they do yeah and in the big ones you've got like you know like in a big studio with spotlights on you and um oh, what's i can't remember the name of the guy i don't know somebody famous chairing the panel and politicians doing what politicians do and being very quick on their feet with their thinking and knowing loads of facts and this little bit oh i kind of what am i, what am I actually doing here that's an increase of fifty thousand. Well done. 50, more nurses. That is our commitment. Just as well you didn't get asked a question about earthworms, isn't it? <laughs> 
What it should really we do about actually, earthworms? Yeah, it really we is. should bludgeon their evil little heads in and <laughs> leave them for the dogs. I, I think what the prospective candidate was trying to say... Um, After six months um, of a lot of extroverting, because although I'm kind of on the cusp, I have more introvert traits than I do or tendencies than I do extrovert. And after six months of extroverting, as you were saying, Dave, wearing the mask, you know, putting on the persona... It was exhausting. And you're kind of, you're kind of, when you're doing something like that, public property in a way that is just a bit bizarre. Mm. Um, you mm. kind of, it's in an energetic level. And I don't mean like physical energy, but, you know, it's this weird kind of thing where, I don't know, I can't, you know, I, I haven't really got the words to describe it. It's not experience, but it kind of carries you along at a certain level. And there was a lot of support from local people, a lot of support, you know, all around me, which was, you know, from friends and stuff, which was great. And then suddenly it just, you know, you get to the end of the campaign, you have election night, um, which was also memorable because the Conservative candidate came across and sat on my table to have a few words and the table collapsed. I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh. I did then, actually. I did laugh when it happened, which was probably the tension of the night. Uh, was, was the, was the table was unable to bear the sheer weight of privilege and the ruling elite. It just said no to holding that um, Conservative uh, MP, yeah, uh, just said not doing this. Um, and then, so I did a similar thing, actually. I also, I also collapsed. So uh had a couple of days in Cornwall and just um, uh, chilled out for a couple of days and came back and went into a service station on Bodmin Moor and looked at some of the headlines about what the Tories were swiftly doing as soon as mm. they got into power. It's like, oh, fuck no. Um and then just sort of dived into this depression, which lasted for about two months. Wow. Um, so I'd had little sort of uh, short periods of being down before, but this was like something that I hadn't encountered before. Uh, and I would just lie in bed for quite a lot of the time listening to Radio 4 and not the news and comment, but, you know, kind of nice programmes and the plays and things like that. And... Um, yeah, and I just really lost all my energy. I didn't really want to engage. I was only seeing hardly any people. And uh, I said to a good friend of mine, Kathy, um, I feel like I should get my teeth into another project because at the moment I'm just lying here and, you know, I need something else to engage me. And she was quite clear and said, nope, you just need to do delightful things for a while. Delightful things. Um, yeah, which turned out to be such good advice. But how do you? Because because I had I had a bit of that where okay, me deciding mm -hmm. to stop coincided with the world deciding to stop. But I did I yeah. I, I felt bad for not doing anything for a bit. Yeah. Um, did yeah. you yeah, yeah. Uh, did you feel bad for doing delightful things for a bit? Well, I could have gone down that route, um, but what I actually chose after a few days of it and feeling bad and feeling I needed to be doing something. Um, was to just go with it. I chose to, it's like, okay, so I'm recognising that there's a part of me that is just saying, you know, that voice I spoke about earlier that said, you just need to stop now, you know, you just need to, you know, like animals go into burrows or whatever and just kind of lie low for a while in order to just re-resource yourself 
um, you know, when we're that committed to the work, uh, we sometimes have to trick ourselves. And so I tricked myself by saying, this is work, you know, this taking downtime, if that's what's required, mm. so I can come back more resourced, more resilient and get whatever wisdom I can from the experience I've just been through, then, well, it's work going and walking by the coast or sitting in the garden singing Kumbaya. Sitting in the pub all day drinking 19 pints of lager. I mean, that's work. Yeah, well, yeah, work. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Where, where, where do you think it comes from, this kind of pressure that we put on ourselves to, to not stop? Because mm-hmm. when you set it out like you just did, it makes perfect sense that, like, you know, a battery needs recharging. Like you, you can't power your things with a battery that's not recharged. So it's legitimate mm-hmm. to recharge your battery. But mm. I, you know, I remember when I started out in in like working in an NGO, and people saying, you know, you're you're more effective if you're rested and if you take proper holidays and stuff. Mm. I was sort of thinking, nah, you, uh, that sounds a bit. That sounds a bit kind of weak. It just, it just sounds a bit weak. Yeah. It sounds a bit soft. Uh, it sounds a bit like I'm. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna be the best I can possibly be if I'm like going home at five o'clock. And I, I swiftly got over that <laughs> because I'm inherent. I'm inherently lazy. But there's definitely something in our. I don't know whether it's a UK thing or a middle class thing or a, or, or or what. But there's a, there's a there's a sort of bizarre work ethic that says that like unless you're really pushing yourself or you're you're competing with others almost that you're not doing the right thing. And even in the field of like trying to save the planet, you know, we're, we're doing nice things. It's not like we're desperately trying to drill more and more oil. <laughs> it's like mm-hmm. we will still give ourselves a hard time for not doing enough. Why? Where does that come from? <laughs> I think you've gone gone some way to answering that yourself. You know, the thing about work ethics, which is yeah. a deeply welcome, cultural thing. W- welcome to the podcast, Jess. <laughs> <laughs> what tends to happen is I'll, I will ask a question and by the time he's finished asking the question, there's no need for you to answer uh, the question. Well, so well, 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 and that's it. what it's all about, isn't <laughs> if, it? If the guest yeah. is still here, even by that point. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what it's all about, isn't it? I think sometimes in asking ourselves the questions, we do answer them, you know, and I see a lot of that in my work. You know, somebody will come with a question and they'll think it through themselves out loud and by the time they get there it's like oh yeah of course it is this and it is this and as you've rightly said it is the uh, um, the work ethic thing and it is also the competitive thing you know we can kind of absolutely get into competitive activism where we see other people doing stuff and we want to kind of almost like outmartyr them or something it's like oh well I haven't seen my family for five days or I haven't slept for 48 hours <laughs> you know it can, it can get a bit like that over 150 of us living in a small shop box in the middle of the road. <laughs> Cardboard box. Right. Oh, you're lucky. <laughs> so how do we overcome it is in individually something about giving us permission uh, and what you were talking about all right at the beginning about whether we stand in our own truth uh, and what we believe to be right or whether we almost get like pulled into other people's perceptions of what we should be doing uh, so something about that but a piece of work that I'm involved in at the moment is also about normalizing it so it doesn't become a thing that people have to feel like embarrassed about doing or guilty about doing because it just becomes part of uh, what we do and what we, this conversation exactly that we're having at the moment is a part of that, just to say, and it's fine, you know, so uh, I'm all for people supporting, encouraging each other to step back when they need to, um, 
saying that they're stepping back when they need to. It's happened with so many things, hasn't it? Like mental health and like Me Too and, you know, loads of other different issues where people have just had the courage to go, right, I might be a bit countercurrent, but I'm going to stand up and say it because I think it needs to be said and it needs to happen. And uh, those mm. are the people who are at the leading edge of that change actually just becoming a thing. And this is to bring it back to the activist point. The point is you you you're not going to be a good activist if you're strung out and knackered or burned out, right? So sure. part of being an effective, yeah, this yeah, is, yeah. it's not either or. You have to look after yourself to make the change that you might want to make in the world, right? Yeah, well, that's it. And that's, I mean, you could just give yourself permission because it's a nice thing to do. You could just say, right, okay, I'm going to be kind to myself because, you know, we can be really mean to ourselves. You know, we talk about oppression and uh control and um, uh, slavery and all of these things, but we do these things to ourselves. Um, so, that, you know, we can kind of really push ourselves and be mean to ourselves and give ourselves a hard time, uh, get the birch twigs out, you know, and kind of give ourselves a hard time. <laughs> so there is something about just being kind to ourselves. And for those of us who are motivated in the way that you describe and you described in your podcast, you know, we can just yeah I'm doing this to be a good activist if we need to give ourselves you know play tricks on ourselves and tell ourselves that's why we're doing it then it doesn't really matter you know as long as we're doing it as long as we're taking time out taking care of ourselves that's good it's all good In last week's episode, I said a thing, and I said I would talk about it some more, and then I didn't. And what that was, was that I've pretty much entirely quit Twitter. Uh -huh. I don't know if I quit it forever, but I haven't been on it for a month, with a couple of exceptions. One of which was to call Ol a cock, which is yeah. worth... Yeah. That, that's fine. That's what Twitter's <laughs> basically for, as far as I can see. Um, and then yeah. some silly... It's nice to focus down, isn't it? On, <laughs> well, that's it. You know. On what you're really there for. <laughs> um, yeah. And a couple of silly jokes. But what I haven't done at all for a, over a month now is gone down what through the list of what everyone is saying and scrolled down through all the things. And so I've just gone on there to call Ol a cock and come off. And I have to say, mm. I've absolutely no desire to go back on. I'll probably have to mm. at some point for work and stuff. Mm. But my God, it feels good. It's one less thing to stress me out and I'm really noticing how big that thing was but you I think in your book you talk about how social media can be bad for activists but also important for activism as well and you use Twitter I've noticed so what, what is the balance do you think how do you what's your relationship with social media yeah well I've gradually come off social media uh, in that I deleted my Facebook account last year and they'll still, they'll still get you that doesn't do anything. They still get, exactly, they do. Yeah. Um, I don't have um, Pinterest or um, I, I don't even know what the other ones are called. Yeah, I've still got Twitter and I've got a kind of on-off relationship with it, mostly off these days. So I keep it mostly so that I can share things. So, for example, you know, I can share this podcast that we make because that's partly because uh, I want to and partly because it's kind of respect and gratitude to you and the work that you're doing and for having me on and stuff. Um so I keep it on for things like that. But like you, I don't scroll down through stuff. Uh, and there's something about when I deactivate it, when I deleted Facebook, and sometimes I deactivate Twitter for long periods of time, um, then it liberates something in me. Uh, I feel like I come out of what's quite um, depressing 
and intense and negative space. That's probably largely to do with the people I follow because they're all posting the <laughs> terrible news, you know. It's like, uh, so I try. Not I f- just your friends. It's not just one. <laughs> <laughs> no, I follow, I follow wildlife people as well. So sometimes it's just like lovely pictures of fungi or like um, butterflies or something, which is okay. But, but I do tend to kind of get mostly the depressing posts and the political rancor and the and and social media well, as well. I think there's two main problems with it, as well as all the brilliant things it has done. And I think it's helped activists organise in a way that has just changed everything completely. It's been absolutely brilliant in that respect. Particularly globally, right? Like look at the, yeah. you know, the Arab Spring and yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But the two problems I see, and this might be different for others, but one is the problem, no, three actually, one's the problem of addiction and that people can get sucked in and pulled into almost like a it's a way of getting kind of contact or a way of getting likes or a way of feeling that we're in stuff and that can become quite addictive uh and you know you know we can spend hours on social media without even knowing what's going without choosing to you know a finger just kind of somehow magically goes towards the twitter icon we didn't want it to so there's the addiction Mm, problem the the infinite scroll the infinite scrolls the one yeah 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 exactly so there's there's that there's something about the divisiveness and the polarization that uh, you know exists on social media and that social media is really exacerbated mm-hmm. uh and you know it's really controversial to say something centrist or something um uh what's the word i'm looking for like that has a mediating effect or a kind of a diplomatic thing because nuance. people from either side yeah. are going to sh- <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah so the whole thing of nuance being lost And um, I think at the moment, it's so important that we're able to engage with others and to try and reclaim that nuance and to build bridges and to uh, integrate in some way, reintegrate these poles. That's a piece of work that I'm engaged in at the moment in another way. And that's very much alive for me. So there's that, the divisiveness. And then there is also the thing of, like you said, you know, they will get you another way. And they do because social media, as we know, is like highly manipulated. And we're being manipulated just by these kind of random, you know, sort of the ruthless whim of algorithms is what's kind of determining who sees our stuff, what stuff we see. And so, you know, our minds are being f***ed with in that way when we're on social media, but we kind of almost like say, well, it's worth it. You know, it's like, I guess any addiction, you know, I drink alcohol or I drink coffee or I take drugs or whatever. And it's like, I know, I know it's doing me harm, but it's kind of, it's worth it for the hit. It's a similar thing. So I think with any addiction, if you can um step back away from that uh, and not have it kind of get its tentacles into your brain and into your life and into the way that you experience humanity then i think i think the world needs some people to kind of not be infected by social media i think it needs some people to be out of that and kind of hold some some kind of sense of sanity and health and that is what i feel and i think you said something similar dave you know i, I feel a lot kind of saner and a lot happier and healthier and i almost the best way i can describe it is i feel Feel more like who I'm meant to be when I'm not on social media, mm. more like actual me. Mm. I, I empathise a lot with that, and it, I think it almost comes full circle in terms of this conversation because I find it an awful lot easier to kind of actually understand what I think about a thing when I'm off social media, mm. when I'm not being bombarded with what other people think about a thing. Even if you know I've deliberately gone out to to follow the people who I think have interesting opinions and who are going to you know, teach me things that I wouldn't find just from my own head. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still 
I just very quickly get into that space of, oh, is this right or is this right? Uh, uh, no, I can't think that because this person said that and that makes it wrong. And you just, mm. paralysis just sets in in terms of, um, well, in, in every sense, really. And yeah, the, I, I've not had a kind of long-term break from social media in the way that Dave's describing or that it sounds like you, you've had as well. But mm. those even those shorter breaks, that's when I've given myself permission to go, uh, I think this, and I'm comfortable with that. <laughs> so, never, never, so never I, share those opinions with anyone. Never tell anyone those things. Yeah, yeah. Then I text them to Dave and say, and it, just to check, this is fine, isn't it? And he says, no, not fine. That puts you somewhere not, to the right of Genghis Khan. Never say that. Yeah, I find that when I do re-engage with social media after a long time, I post something almost like naively, but naively in a good way. Um, I think mm. <laughs> I post something, and then a few days later, I think. God, I wouldn't. There's no way I would have posted that if I'd been using social media every day. I would have just been too, kind of like, yeah, uh, exactly what you described. Um, I just wouldn't have done it. Hang on, guys. Maybe, maybe the science of climate change isn't quite settled after all. Can we all just, can we all just actually have a discussion about that as mature adults, <laughs> guys? <laughs> guys. <laughs> Jill, thank you so much for coming on here and listening to us um, asking you things oh, and pleasure. talking so brilliantly. Um, what is your book called? Your books, indeed. And where can people get hold of them and indeed find out more about what you're up to? Oh, OK. Um, so there are three books. Uh, the first was a book called Hearing Our Calling, which is about doing work that's good for the soul and good for the world. And the second book was called The Game, uh, Life Versus the Dark Powers, which really kind of lays out the air, lays out the struggle between forces for good and forces for evil in a, in a gamey kind of way. And then the most recent one, which we've been talking about today, I guess, is The Trembling Warrior, which is a guide for reluctant activists. And there's more stuff on my website, which is just jillcoombs.co.uk. Right, this is the section where we um, we look at how we've been getting on. And when I say we, we I really mean we we have a look at how Dave's been getting on. Dave, who has made a career in dealing with numbers and criticising other people's approach and application of numbers. The amount of times you've banged on about people using their spreadsheets and how spreadsheets and numbers shouldn't be used. What have you done, Dave? Tell the class. What have you done? Balls up the numbers. Balls up the numbers. Now, shut up and listen to me apologising. I am very sorry for a thing that I got wrong. Now, what happened was, in last week's episode of Sustainable, we were talking about the Cumbria coal mine. And I said, here are some figures I've worked out about how much of emissions that is equivalent to the contributing thereof. And I said it was something like 9% of UK emissions. And all went, 
wow, I trust you, Dave. That's a big figure. And then I said, yeah, yeah. And then someone else's figures are even higher. Basically got that completely wrong. Now, I didn't discover that I'd got it completely wrong by waking up in the middle of the night and discovering I got it wrong or from you know, frustrated emails from listeners saying I got it wrong. I discovered from a very unusual source, which is all told me I'd got it wrong because old, nu- old numbers all over here. Numbers all, and I, I must say, six days too late, decided that he would go back and have a look at the maths that I'd done, look, and told me I that think, I'd I th- basically missed a zero off. I think we've established by now that whilst I might not do the right thing at the right time... Get there in the I end. I quite often do the right thing at the wrong time. So <laughs> Yes. You know. So, uh, the by my own calculations, when I said it was 9% of UK emissions, I should have said 0.9% of UK emissions. And then I'll say, yeah, it's not even that, you idiot, because you're not even, not even got it right against as a percentage. So it's something like 2.5% is roughly what we now think it is of UK emissions, is what that coal mine is. Now, what we've done is a very... Firstly, I'm very sorry. We've done a very unusual thing, which is I've actually gone back to the episode from last week and edited that bit out. The reason being, I impugned the numbers of Becky Willis. I actually... I don't want those numbers out there because they're wrong. I don't want people using them. And I don't want uh, to imply that other people said it was that high because it isn't. So I'm very sorry for doing it. So I'm sorry to you, I'll I'm sorry to the Babel Army. Good luck to those of you who have got that episode downloaded and want to use it against me in future. I shall just deny all knowledge and say it was a deep fake. <laughs> um, well, congratulations. I, I was disappointed not to hear the kind of the ministerial apology, the, the, the pretty Patel apology of I'm sorry if any of you heard, heard those numbers wrong. My numbers um, were hacked. My uh, the preparation dot was hacked, and I yeah. meta- metaphorically broadcast an image of my cock and balls to the nation. <laughs> I'm very sorry. Both in defence, and I think it is important to note that it was your fault for not checking it beforehand. So if we can just be very clear where the fault lies. Gosh, that's a big call. That is a big call. So that is just about it for another episode of The Babble. Thank you very much, Jill, for writing your books and coming to speak to us and being an activist and getting nicked for the planet and being a trembling warrior and being great and being my therapist. Thank you, (laughs) thank you, thank you. Uh, Thank you to Dave as well for babbling heroically as usual and thank you to Dickie Moore for the music that begins, ends and intertwinkles this podcast. And thank you to Arthur Stovall for the artwork, which is on our website and on our T-shirts, which you can buy from our website at www.sustainababble.fish. Yep, sorry in advance for whatever it is I've done that's, that I've had to go back and take out this time around. Yeah. Um, you can get in touch with us. Not a single one of you, not a single one of you bastards wrote in and said, Dave, you got your sums wrong. It took all to do it. Just reflect on that for a minute. And you think about whether you want to write in and tell us what you thought of the show, which you can do by emailing hello at sustainababble.fish. We're on the Twitter at the Babble Wagon. Not that I'll see it, but I'll notice no. that. Um, <laughs> or we're on the Facebook at Sustainababble. Very good. And um, in case you missed it at the beginning, another reminder that you can give us money. We would like you to give us money. We very much appreciate it when you do give us money. Go to wobblywobblywobbly.patreon.com forward slash sustainable and there you can give us the price of a pint or a coffee or whatever. Um, yeah, and it makes a huge difference. It means that we can keep the show on the road and do another 202 babbles in double quick time. 
And if you can't do that, do leave us a review on your podcast medium of choice because that all matters and counts and all. Yes? Good? Right. Good. I'm off to go and find what my true self thinks about things. It could take a while. I suggest you go off to get your glasses fixed and your hair sorted out, son. That, I think, is a a higher priority, don't you? (laughs) Okay, right. First thing first. (laughs) Right. Bye. Bye. Bye.